Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have one from the archives today. This special interview was actually a phone call and a little bit of backstory here. So originally, I wrote a book called This Gift, where I interviewed 15 Jewish artists that travel the country doing different types of Jewish music events, leading prayer, leading worship, and I wanted to unpack their lives and get a behind-the-scenes look at their lives. So that was This Gift Volume 1, which took four years for me to release. And I started writing This Gift Volume 2, which was going to be interviewing cantors, cantorial soloists, chazans, and my wife had the brilliant idea of doing it as a podcast instead to save time and also because people are more likely to consume audio and video than the written word. And so, like any dutiful husband, I listened to her advice and that was the birth of the Holy Sparks podcast. Now, I did an interview with the amazing Chava Morel before I made the decision to switch to a podcast and I have it here for you, ladies and gentlemen. So the audio quality is a little bit different than my usual podcast because this was a couple years ago and it was through a phone recorder, etc. So bear that in mind as you're listening and the content though is absolutely gold. So you'll love it. And with that being said, let's roll. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for wisdom, mentorship, and inspiration, you're in the right place. All right, we are live here with the amazing Hava Morel. And I am super excited. This is the first interview for this book. So I'm saying we should say Shehachnyanu. <laughs> and I, what I really am most excited about is, you know, you bring such a unique perspective from all the different things that you've done. But I really want to take it from the beginning and um, just allow you to open up about your musical roots, kind of where you came from, and your upbringing. Well... First of all, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be talking to you and get to participate in this amazing project. Um, I am uh, from Seattle, Washington. I was born and raised here, and I live here now. Um, I was born into a, fam- a leadership family. My dad was a, is a reform rabbi and was the associate rabbi at Temple to Hirsch Sinai, where I'm now the cantorial soloist. Oh. Um, and my mom is an opera singer. So she was singing with Seattle Opera, as well as, you know, um, doing uh, cantorial work as well, and, you know, anything, anything vocal. So I was raised in that environment. Mm. Um, and I started singing for the people at a very young age. I was probably just over a year old in 1977. Uh, I I like to sing. And their parents were always doing events. It was like the Hadassah women's group were having a luncheon and they wanted, and you know, they wanted someone to entertain them. And I was quite entertaining because I was a, a, a really 
like a baby singing. So that was fun for everyone. And but it was really what it was I was doing a mitzvah. And so that was the framing of it of singing for people when I was just born that singing for people was a mitzvah and that that was bringing joy to people. And it was not really ever uh, judged on a technical basis whatsoever. So Mm. music for me was always like a mitzvah. Oh, well, I definitely think you win the award for the earliest, youngest gigging person I've ever interviewed. That is awesome. (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah, carry on. Tell me more about kind of your formative years and and, and that environment. Yeah, so um, uh, I sang a lot at the nursing home and for the, um, you know, the temple and any opportunity where there was a gathering, I would sing and my dad would accompany me on the guitar. And my mom also was singing, so we would harmonize together. So I really had a lot of opportunities to do music for the community at a very young age. I also had a Hebrew tutor when I was two years old. This is just like wild because now I am an adult with a child and I know what these ages are. And my kid is exactly the same way. My kid was obsessed with letters at age two also. And I just ran into my two-year-old tutor, Esty, at the Summit Retirement Home where we just had our last Hanukkah concert. And I performed with my child and my dad and my mom. So it's oh like it's I I get if if you're into that kind of thing I'm really into that kind of thing you know I'm really into like the Lador Vador it gets me every time and I just mm. like it's so cool you know to be the age that those grown-ups were when I was born and now you know to get to still know them and their older age so uh, yeah did a lot of stuff like that temple. Sunday school. I started Sunday school in 1980, and I'm now teaching music. I'm a music you know, cantorial soloist at the same Sunday school that I went to in 1980, and my kid wow. goes there. So I love those full circle things. I I did go other places. I wasn't in Seattle my whole life, but I love that coming back and giving back to the community and getting to you know, be on the other side of things, mentoring and all that. It's like really rewarding for me. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at right now. Wow. I love it. Okay. Well, you answered several questions in that first one, but um, I, this is just a really unique situation for sure, because you started in the shul and you started in, you know, playing music with your parents and, um, it had such like an organic musical upbringing. It's very, it's very uncommon actually. It's really, I'm not sure you know that, but to have that as a model, like this is normal. This is, this is what we do in the world, you know? So I guess it'd be interesting to talk about like, obviously, you know, you have a lot of roots in jazz as well and other styles, reggae. And um, talk to me about kind of, you know, starting, I guess, really steeped in the Jewish world and then branching out. What was that like? Or did you really see yourself as a like a jazz artist or, you know, reggae artist? Or did you have other visions along the way? Well, 
first of all, I want to say that I was raised in a situation where there was like two musical tiers that were both highly valued by the community. And it's still true that to this day, there was kind of the classical reform, organ, choir, you know, a cantorial, but like very reform uh, mm -hmm. style. And my mom was an opera singer, so she was like proficient in that. And then my dad was also, as the associate direct, uh, rabbi, he was the camp director of the temple camp. And so mm -hmm. I then there was a really, really rich camp music tradition at temple as well. And so, you know, I was raised with both of those. And for me personally, my personal style gravitated more toward the camp music, but I was trained as a classical piano player as a kid. And so I had all sorts of classical training as well. And then I went mm. to college for music. But even before that, my high school was a jazz high school. Oh, wow. So even okay. though I was a vocalist, they didn't really have a vocal program. It was an instrumental jazz program, but I was really close with the director of the jazz program. It's like I got mentored, like he assigned some other students to me and they, he had to mentor me because they didn't really mm -hmm. have a vocal program, but he still wanted me to get some exposure. And like, those are the guys who are like the leading jazz musicians in Seattle today. This kid, kids mm -hmm. I went to high school with, it, you know, it just so happens that I was, I was lucky to be influenced by those people at the right moment. And so then when I went to college for music, I already had kind of a jazz background. I went to CalArts in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. And uh -huh. it was a really cool program because they had, they offered a lot of different kinds of music and the, I didn't have to choose a, like a kind of a path. They let me do multi-focus for my, uh -huh. um, you know, my, I got to pursue any kind of music I wanted. It all went into that. So I did jazz piano. I did jazz guitar. I did African performance and Latin performance those were like my focuses so you know so super random but ended up playing those kinds of music yeah and the african was like my main focus in college music African? from the like, awe speaking region of, yeah the awe speaking region of ghana yeah i love it i love that music that's yeah. cool I don't want to talk about me, but we'll talk yeah. about that another time. Love that stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, I totally want to talk about that with you. Yeah. What I love about your story is you're not only a citizen of the world, but really like taking in all these different styles. Like that's why, that's why your well is so deep. Like when you listen, at least when I listen to you, it's like, oh, there's a lot here, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ingredients in the gumbo. So tell me, um, more like in terms of Cal Arts, you could take a lot of different stuff, but was it just basically you were a music major or did you have to pick anything kind of focused towards the end? Yeah. Yeah, no, you had to be music. Like there were five departments and they were all art, different arts and you you were completely isolated to that department. You weren't, you couldn't even take classes in the other departments uh -huh. unless they were like through the music curriculum. So I had to choose something for music and I initially had gone there with the intention of studying voice. But the problem was, I'm really not a vocalist. I, I am I am a vocalist, but I am not a singer. Meaning, I don't fit in with the other singers. So I, I didn't you. really fit in with that program. It wasn't for me. I'm more of a 
multi-focused musician. And luckily mm-hmm. they had that. They were like, oh yeah, we have, that's, that's a degree too. You can just do that. Mm-hmm. You can study voice, but you don't have to be in that program because it just wasn't going to work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I, and I even didn't even get a degree. I was not really, I did not have the skills, the executive functioning skills that it took to complete that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I want to talk more about that. Yeah. I also dropped, I also dropped out of music school, but for different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, music school is great, but I, I haven't found that the lack of degree has harmed me at all in my career. But that's just, you know, I have the, I have enough privilege that I was able to continue, you know, uh, going, moving up, ascending without that. I love it. And so you just you were there for just a, kind of a few years or how long were you there? I was there for four years, and part of the time I was there part-time, part of the time I was just, like, my boyfriend was still a student, so I was still part of the community there, even though I had now become, I had started working at synagogues. Mm, okay. Yeah. You know, I did a little bit before when I was a full-time student, but in my final year down there at, uh, in, the, in the Cal Arts, community. I was teaching bar mitzvah studies at multiple synagogues in the Los Angeles area. Um, and that was just my job. Were you um, like working yeah. in LA, but outside of the Jewish world too, or, or mostly just in the, in the Jewish world? I never did barely ever done a single job outside of the Jewish world professionally. Oh, okay. Interesting. I don't think I have since I was 20. I seem to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you like toured with a reggae band or something, or am I just totally making that up? That is not a job. I lost money touring with the reggae band, so that does not count as a job. Well, okay, it's (laughs) a gig, but not a job. (laughs) Yeah, it's a gig, but I, I had to take time off of my contract with the religious schools Okay. You know, that I had, you know what I mean? I had a year, yearly contract, basically, for about 20 years. I had yearly contracts with synagogues where I would sign from November, from September to June to teach in their, in their school. And I would combine three different synagogues because some of them would be Mondays, some of them would be Tuesdays, some of them would be Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh-huh. And some of them, they would have a Saturday thing that I would go do, or they would have me leading a Tosh Shabbat, or they would have me do a, a youth choir, or a Saturday morning with babies, or anything. Like, literally, I would do any single job in the synagogue that was, like, on the lowest tiers of the hierarchy, mm-hmm. but still mm-hmm. an educator, not, like, custodial. <laughs> 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 yeah, Great. Are, wow, I love it. Um, yes, and I, I too lost money touring with the band. So yeah, we were definitely uh, brothers and sisters in, in spirit on that. I think it's all called part of paying your tuition, really. But speaking of tuition, here's a question for you. It sounds like, I mean, obviously you went to CalArts, but was there a cantorial school element at all? Or was that more on the job training or from your parents? Talk to me about that. To be honest with you, on the record, 
I did not have the maturity to be a public figure in the Jewish community until I turned 40. Okay, that's deep. Tell me why it was. Experiences that I had that confirmed that when I was 20, (laughs) that like made me not want to be a public person for a long time. And like it was pre-internet. So it was just, I acted stupid and I just couldn't do it. I could do, I could do local work. But if mm. I was like, I couldn't do anything where there was in too much of the public eye because I just couldn't handle the attention, pressure, anything of it. I mm. needed to just work with a classroom and just be with the kids and not mm-hmm. like try to, you know, do anything else. And it was great for me because I had my external life where I was still performing in clubs and doing all that. But none of that really, I, I don't consider that a job. I was working professionally, but it wasn't going to pay the bills. So I had to have this contract at the temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also for my neshama, let me tell you, that kept me grounded to know that there was kids that were counting on me because even though I was really immature, I was older than them and I right. cared about them so much, you know? So it was like good for me. It was like the perfect thing. It was almost like, you know, a safe environment to grow up in. Yeah, I oh, I just, I resonate so much. I taught music for 12 years from my 20s to early 30s and uh, it, totally for the same reason and totally got the same benefit and grounding and like, hey, these kids really need you to show up. You know, you can't just not show up to their lessons or whatever. You're, you're, and for me, it was like, it's so much, and I'm sure for you too, it's so much more than just the music or the, the subject matter. It's you mentoring what it's like to be a cool adult, you know, or different type of adult that they don't get access to. So that was also a cool uh, and important sense of responsibility and ownership of my role. Even if it was a private room, it was, you know, important for them. Okay. The fact that it wasn't like the public made it so authentic, you know, and I mean, this sure. is such a gift that we got that, you know, that we were lucky enough. I mean, can you imagine if all the other musicians got to have these kind of revered positions in communities like that, where it was something outside of the, you know, hierarchy of like the music world and all that status and everything. It was just like being loved. And I don't know. I just think it was, it's, it's healing. It's healing and it's real too. You know, it's, it's, yeah. kids can tell if you're faking it or not. So you have to really show up. And, you know, I also think it's just a very important way of keeping lineage together and giving back what, what we were given. Totally. So, yeah. Okay, so, so a couple of things I want, I want you to talk about. There's two things that you did, that you've done, which I think would be really interesting for you to kind of unpack. Number one, you were an artist in residence. I think for one particular community for some time. And then now it's more of like a full-time role. So what would be great for people that maybe aren't familiar with the artist in residence model? Like just talk about that a little bit. Let's just start there. And then we can talk about how it's different now. Well, you know, this is all completely abstract because there is not a single document or protocol anywhere 
for what this means, how it gets arranged. So I just want to put that out there. Artist in residence is a made-up thing. Yeah. But what it is to me, you know, because, like, I came into it not that long ago, you know, in, in the larger scheme of things. And so I had to kind of figure out what is this thing. But to me what it is is if you are a composer in the Jewish world and you are a compelling musician, then people want you to come there in person. They do not want to just, they love singing your songs, and that is really the most important thing, truly, when you're not there, because your song is bigger than you, you know? You're just a channel for the song, and the song is the most important thing. It's a way for the people to experience prayer. The song is the prayer, you know? So the song is the main thing, but if people love the song, and they saw a video of something that you did or whatever, they want you to come to their community in person. And because we're a national or almost like a continental community that we live in, it's like you got to get on a plane and go there for the weekend and do a whole bunch of programming while you're there because it's the one time you're going to go to Rochester or whatever. And if you want to make take advantage of all the opportunities, visit all the different segments of the community, want to be with the young people, the old people, if you, uh, you know, you want to be able to teach a workshop and work with the teens and all the stuff that a person could do as a Jewish educator that, you know, hopefully as an artist, as a composer, you also know, you've also done it at camp. You've also been a camp leader. You've also been a Hebrew school teacher. You've also been all those things like you and I talked about that were, you know, off camera. Mm-hmm. You know, we're developing relationships with people and developing your teaching style and everything. So then you go in there and you do that. And it hopefully has a lasting impact on the community. Hopefully they can refer back to things that they experienced while you were there. It's not you. I mean, you're just there to facilitate their connections with each other and, you know, with the prayers and with the music. But that's what an artisan residency is. And so because I live here in Seattle, my synagogue asked if I could be a artisan residence when I'm in town at the synagogue. So on my off weekends when I was not traveling, I would be scheduled to do the same thing that I would do in Detroit or whatever, but at my own synagogue, which is just teach and anything, anything they wanted, services. And then with the pandemic, there was no more traveling, and so I asked my beloved rabbi if I could do that at the temple all the time and just stay there. Because my kid also entered the Hebrew school, and I did not want to be at someone else's Hebrew school and my kids at my Hebrew school. I just I didn't want that, to miss out on this opportunity. So yeah. that's what it is. It's it, it's just a it's just a title, you know. It could be anything. You could say. The, you know, song leader. A lot of people are titled song leaders. What's the difference between a song leader and an artist in residence is if you wrote, if you are a composer. Oh, if you compose, then it bumps you up to the next tier, artist in residence. Right. Okay. So give people a couple examples. Cause like, so an artist in residence, so let's say, you know, my perspective is it's usually like maybe four or five times a year you would go to a community and do that. Um, has that been your experience in terms of the artist in residence model, as opposed to just like a one-off weekend, something that's more regular? 
you know, what, tell me a little bit more about what that kind of looked like for you so people can get a sense of what that might look like for them. For me, in my experience, I, I've had a little bit of a mixed experience because of the pandemic, which completely changed the landscape of what artists and residencies look like. But for the first three or four years of my career as a, as a national artist, I would visit uh, probably uh, four or five communities a year for the weekend, as well as probably 10 other appearances nationally in one capacity or another, because I love to collaborate with other artists. So I, you know, I would do recording sessions with artists where they would find me out and record their album, or I would do a concert where it was another artist's music, but they featured me on their songs. So I was, I was lucky enough to have other opportunities in addition to full weekend artist and residencies to travel and go. And there's also, and then there were also important part of my year were conferences. There are, I guess I don't really know what it's like right now, but conferences, I would attend four conferences a year at very least. And that was Uh often at my own expense, but Uh that was really, really important to me, both for my personal relationships and to continue those collaborations with other artists. And also just to see all my loving friends. And uh, I, if I got to perform at the conference, it was like a huge platform for yeah. people to get to know me. And there's still people hiring me today from a, a performance that I did two years ago yeah, uh, for at sure. the Biennial, the URJ Biennial. So. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So we, we kind of outlined loosely, you know, what an artisan residence model could look like. And so... Now that you have more like a full-time gig, what do you like best about that model that you're in now? Um, Well, as I was mentioning before, I love full circle life experiences where I get to pass something on to my own kids that I experienced when I was a kid or that I'm connecting with someone after all these years in a way that feels really resonant for me and has a lot of meaning in it. And so there are so many opportunities for that in my current job. For instance, this coming weekend, there's a bat mitzvah of a lovely child who is the daughter of a kid who I went to the Jewish day school with in Seattle in the 80s. And that to me, it's like, it blows my mind. It's so meaningful to me and it touches me so deeply to do that. I could just never get tired of that. So that's just one example of many that I would not be able to experience. Now, sometimes I would have those experiences. Almost every single time I've traveled, I have run into someone who knew my grandmother because she was, um, she worked in the national URJ headquarters. Before it was the URJ, it was the UAHC. She was the, Uh had an office there. She had relationships with everyone around the country. And so wherever I go, someone says, oh, I knew your grandmother, or I went to camp Uh with your dad, or something like that. So I still get that on the national level as well, but it's just more, more in my own temple. Plus Uh it's four miles away. 
It's four miles away. Yeah, that's nice too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it just yeah. takes like a minute to get there. It's not like I have to travel for. I live in Seattle. It, to go somewhere else, it takes a million years because it's not like central at all. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. Uh, well, a couple side questions. Do you feel like it's important for someone to? I mean, obviously, you have a completely unique path which everyone does, but definitely a little bit more different than most people I'm going to be interviewing for this book. Do you feel like it's important for someone to go to cantorial school to do this work uh, and why or why not? I am definitely of multiple minds come from a lineage that is very loyal to the organizational movement. Um, and I myself am not even eligible to go to the URJ Cantorial Rabbinical School because my husband's not Jewish. So, like, I have, I'm on both sides of this. I'm both completely opposed to it and also completely um, for it. Wait, um, hold on. Pause. Yeah. Pause. I want to make sure I heard you right. Did you yeah. say you can't go to URJ Cantorial School because your husband's not Jewish? Correct. Wow. Okay. Print that. Uh -huh. See where that and goes. my ex-husband isn't Jewish either. So I've always <laughs> just never, no I was never going to be their person, you know? And so just alone that the fact that that makes me not want to go, but also, but also my temple doesn't really want uh, someone who's ordained as a cantor. They wanted someone who wasn't because they don't really like the style of the cantorial. Uh -huh singing so you know i wouldn't have this job if i were or i mean maybe i would but you know more and more people are not going the cantorial route i do not want to say anything harmful to that 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 whole i don't want to harm the concept of cantors because I yeah, believe yeah. in no, this, is, this, is, this is totally just, we're, we're going to get, you know, 12 interviews and 14 opinions, so it's totally fine. <laughs> this is just, yeah, yeah. Uh, this but is I, I yeah. do believe there are, there are so many roles, and I don't really inherently and intrinsically believe in titles and hierarchies. So for that reason alone, I don't think that everyone needs to be ordained to be leaders, and I think there are so many really important roles in the community that can't be fulfilled by someone ordained so it takes all of the different kinds of people so those people who feel drawn to that they know who they are like they are the ones who should do it just like people should not have kids unless they like cannot literally live another day until they have a child and that's how it should be for the rabbis and cantors and they know who they are yeah i, I agree on both fronts for sure so what are the most challenging parts about like having a full-time gig uh, as a cantorial soloist. What are some of the challenges that someone might expect that you could maybe illuminate so they can kind of prepare for it? It's hard for me to answer because I have yet to encounter a challenge in my position as cantorial soloist, but I don't think that that's typical. I think that I, it's only right. because I've worked in this field for, for 35 years that so I have already, <laughs> I've already done, learned everything the hard way already, already. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm like 
I've not been asked to do anything that I don't feel prepared to do so far in this position, just mm. only by virtue of the fact that I've only done this job my entire life. And I just wasn't ever called a cantorial soloist before, uh, but I was serving in this role already for so, so long. And I have learned a lot about it and it feels very natural to me now. I love it. Okay. But I can talk about what some of the challenges are that people do encounter. I think that's super useful, actually, yeah. Yeah, well, I think one of the challenges is that uh, there's no way to prepare yourself for the exact personalities that you're going to be working with, and those can shift at any time because there's uh, often a changing kind of cast of different people working on the staff and in the in the clergy team. And so that's something that has to be navigated really um, gently and you know that that alone is like a whole skill set. So I think the more kind of emotional intelligence and awareness, the more kind of uh, self-awareness that a person has, the more success you'll have in these positions. Because the cantorial soloist is not the person who's really making decisions in an organization. So, yeah, yeah. you know, being able to work with other people, being able to, you know, compromise and still feel good about yourself if they don't like what you're doing or, you know, if you get criticized or something. That hasn't happened to me, and I'm, I'm blessed in this particular role, but it happened to me in, in, in other places. And it's hard on the ego, you know, I think one of the main things in this job, whether you're a rabbi, cantor, song leader, or any of the leadership roles, is that to remember what I said in the beginning was it's a mitzvah. You're doing this. It's not about you. It's about Mm -hmm. fulfilling mitzvot. And that is helpful for me because it takes the ego out of it for me. And the ego is like what makes me feel self-judgment, comparison, not good enough or any of those things that are a hindrance to the beauty of the music, you know, those things are like not compatible. So uh, that, that's been really helpful for me. I'm leading prayers. That's my job. You know, I'm not a rock star. I'm not the anything. I'm a person who's helping to lead prayers. And the whole purpose of that is to serve the community so the community can feel that their prayers have been uplifted and go where it needs to go. And so that that's like my guiding principle as a cantorial soloist. I love it. I love it. Lots to unpack there, but I'll let that sit. What do you think that, uh, you know, the cantorial world or, you know, you've been around to a lot of communities. Like, what do you think as the cantorial or the Jewish world needs now mostly from artists and or cantorial solos and cantors? Rhythm. Rhythm? We need rhythmic complexity. We need rhythm and syncopation and we need to understand rhythm better because seriously, I will I will die on this hill. This is like, this, this is the gateway to spirit is through rhythm and it's just something that like we don't lean on that heavily we very heavily lean on harmony and melody and which are super important but without the rhythmic understanding and complexity we're just never going to get there it's physical it's in in our bodies it's somatic and that's 
that's where the juice is. So that's what we need to cultivate. Amen to that. Oh my goodness. So, so true. So true. I, side note, I'll probably edit this out, but I think about, and I listen to a lot of gospel music and these generational musicians, you know, four, five, six generations deep. And, you know, like some of the modern, like Christian gospel artists, um, their rhythms are just like so deep and so multi-layered and so freaking groovy. Like you could not understand anything they're saying, hear that music and feel like you're lifted up to spirit, spirit, you know, and, and yeah, and that's just, take some time to get that deep, you know, not just clapping on two and four, there's a lot more, but um, I totally agree with you. Long yeah. way of saying that. Okay. Here's one that uh, I, I always ask everyone, what is a big mistake you've made uh, along the way that uh, you feel comfortable sharing that uh, others could learn from? Either something you did on the BEMA or off the BEMA or at a gig or at a service or whatever that was like, oops, that you think that people could learn from? Um, oh, my gosh, I've made a million mistakes. So, uh, But I think one of the biggest mistakes I've made uh, working in organizations is not saying something if I wasn't feeling good about the situation and mm. just kind of, uh, you know, becoming resentful or, you know, anything like that. I think it's really, really important when you work with other people to feel comfortable saying this something isn't working for me or, you know, this this isn't, you know, it's not going well or something. I think that's really important. And I think we should like, it's not just me. I think there's a culture. I think we should be able to have a culture that even if you're not one of the important people in the building, that you should still be able to talk about how you're doing and, you know, make criticisms to how things are going. So that's been a mistake of mine is that often maybe I've had, I could have used my privilege maybe to help other people in the organization who weren't able to speak up for themselves because I do have more privilege, but I maybe didn't, didn't do that. So I, I regret that. Mm-hmm. I got it. Yeah. You got it. I love it. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to say, to kind of the next generation of people coming up and doing this work, cantors, cantorial soloists, et cetera, people serving the Jewish community? Mm-hmm. I would say that people of every background need to feel safe, to feel accepted, and to feel like held in compassion. And so anything that we can do as leaders to cultivate that in ourselves and in our leadership is going to make the world a better place. And that is literally the most important thing that we can do, period. I love it. I love it. Okay. One last thing. You just touched on a great, important point. Talk about leadership. It's something I'm super passionate about, and I think it needs to be taught, cultivated, and mentored, and it's not. So I want you to talk about, you know, being a leader in your community and anything else you want to say about that. I believe that we have, we are experiencing a paradigm shift as a culture that impacts our understanding of leadership drastically. 
in the past, we have wanted leaders that had a sense of authority and formality and structural um, validity. And now I sense that we are more interested in leaders that have authentic vulnerability. And so that's something that every leader should have. Yes, amen. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. We can talk about a lot in our house. There's so much else I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and we could talk for hours, but I think this has been amazing. And I just want to thank you so much for your contribution. I mean, we love, as you know, Yvonne and I love your music and especially well, we've been doing your bar a lot lately. And I just get chills. Like, I think your music comes from such a deep place, uh, personally and spiritually. And also technically it's great, you know, and I know that the Jewish world is uplifted by you and has been for the last three plus decades and, you know, uh, will be for many more. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. And I look forward to all the, the gifts you'll be giving the Jewish world in the decades to come. Thank you, Saul. You too. You've been a huge influence on me and I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family who you think would be inspired by the content and we will see you on our next episode.